So this is kind of a stretch, but just for a second, put yourself in the shoes of an invading army. It's hard work, it's long hours, it's heavy lifting, it's gritty and dangerous. You probably don't have a lot of extra energy left over. So the question is, why do so many invaders even bother sacking the local museum? I'm going to give away the ending. It's all about power. It's always about power. What's interesting, though, is that it manifests itself in lots of different ways. That's Humboldt State University's Julie Alderson. She teaches art history. And while ISIS makes headlines for destroying religious symbols, she's going to highlight so many other examples of historic art destruction, theft, even repurposing. This is Mike Dronkers, and you're listening to My Favorite Lecture. These are remarkable talks from HSU educators, and you're about to get a brief history of art looting and destruction over time. Why people do it, the different outcomes they're looking for. Is it always bad? And it kind of throws a new light on what you see when you go to certain museums and how that stuff got there. This episode was recorded in front of a live audience at the Plaza View Room in Arcata, California. Stick around after the lecture. There was some great Q&A with the audience. And as you're aware, since we're talking about art, this is going to be very visual radio. Hopefully you're good with that. But if not, we've got tons of pictures. They're sequenced to the lecture, and they're posted right now over at khsu.org. So maybe pop over there and check them out as you listen. But before the lecture got started, we had to know something. Alderson was on the record as taking a provocative stance, that's what we'll call it, on one of the art world's most divisive contemporary painters. The talk that I did then was called Thomas Kincaid is my favorite artist, ellipse, uh, in the classroom. Well, I teach contemporary art and theory. Generally, what I used to do for the first kind of discussion in that class was get us onto a conversation about what is art, what's contemporary art, who decides what's contemporary art. You know, we expect contemporary art to be very difficult and challenging and, and, that, and expensive, and that he was the polar opposite of that. People love his work. I want people to love art. So we looked at him with our serious art history goggles on and had a lot of really wonderful, interesting conversations about it. So tonight you're going to talk about looting and destruction of art. If there was a piece of art that you could get back, what would it be? Ooh, that's a good question. The thing that I would most love to see in its glory and its entirety would probably be the Parthenon. Even what's still there, what's there today is spectacular. And you, can, you only sort of get this glimpse of it in its ruin. And components of it live in other parts of the world. And so the, whole, the idea of the synthesizing all of that. And I also really would want to go inside and see the gigantic Athena sculpture. So give us a rundown of what you're going to talk about tonight. Sure. So I'm going to talk about this idea of looting and destruction of art. There are lots of different variations on that idea. And what I hope when I do a talk like this, you know, the reality is that things will, like this will continue to happen. So it puts it sort of on your radar in a different way. When you see it, you will think about it in the relationship to this historical perspective that we're going to talk about. Well, good luck tonight. Thank you. Thanks. Without further ado, please make welcome Julie Alderson. So, um, contrary to the advertisements, this is what I'm going to do tonight is actually not my favorite lecture. Um, my favorite lecture is actually a lecture I don't give anymore. It's about Thomas Kincaid, the painter of light trademark. Conversation has gotten a lot less fun to do since he died tragically. So I don't do this lecture anymore because it just doesn't feel good. But this is, in my heart, this is my favorite lecture. So 
looting and destruction is actually something that um, is threaded through a lot of the lectures that I do in a lot of classes that I teach. And so this is kind of a, a combination of several things all together. So um, the, the, this is the image that was uh, sort of on the poster advertising this talk. These are Romans looting mightily. Uh, that sculpture is from the Ark of Titus, which is in Rome. And it's actually positioned, and this is a beautiful, dramatically lit photograph of this, so you can really see the detail. This is actually what it looks like in situ, so it's a little bit rough around the edges and not so clear to see. But um, this is an example of, of the Romans looting, and they were very, very good at it. Uh, and so what I'm going to do is sort of run through a lot of different examples of this, this concept of looting and destruction historically from the ancient times to the present. And I'm going to give away the ending. It's all about power. It's always about power. What's interesting, though, is that it manifests itself in lots of different ways. And there are lots of, of variations to this sort of theme of power. Uh, and, and so we're going to trace this idea of sort of why do people um, destroy cultural objects? Why do they steal them? And what does that mean over time? And I, I should say also that this is a very brief overview. There are so many examples of this I could give, unfortunately. My thinking on this topic was coalesced around uh, the recent destruction of the ancient city of Palmyra by ISIS. So what you're going to hear tonight is sort of related to that and also connected to some of the things I thought about as I was teaching that class early in October. So, um, so the Romans, uh, they definitely were interested in stealing things when they were uh, out and about conquering the lands around them. The Arch of Titus was constructed actually by Emperor, uh, Emperor Domitian. This was shortly after Titus, his older brother, died. And the arch was intended to celebrate Titus's victories, and specifically the siege of Jerusalem, which happened in uh, the year 70. That's what this image is showing. Uh, this is the sacking of the second temple, and they're stealing most obviously, you can see the menorah that, um, that they're carting off. So um, these, when the Romans were um, out into the hinterlands and sort of attacking uh, out in, out, uh, throughout the Mediterranean region, they would often uh, bring spoils home in triumph. Uh, and, that, and those objects were used to sort of obviously to display the power of, of the emperor. Uh, and that, uh, it's what, what's interesting about this example is that, this, that the, the arch itself sort of uh, illustrates that, uh, that activity. So um, the Colon of Trajan is another example. Uh, this is a, 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 um, a, a triumphal kind of column dedicated to, uh, to the Emperor Trajan. It's 128 feet tall, and it has a, a, a frieze that wraps up around it. It's about 625 feet long, this frieze. And it is a, a, an illustration of Titus's most important military feat, uh, his uh, battle with the Dacians. And this column uh, not only illustrated various events from that siege, that campaign, um, he was, of course, you can imagine, successful, right? And, and, the, and the arms and, uh, and goods that they stole from the Dacians were then piled up uh, below this, uh, below this um, column. And, and actually, um, Trajan was buried in it. It was his tomb as well. So, uh, so it's really very much obviously about celebrating his military feat and, this, and the strength uh, and power of, um, of the Romans. So this is the sort of uh, military power sort of aspect of this. But there are lots of other things that the Romans did that sort of relate to this concept of looting that are, I don't know, more benevolent or different. A really, uh, I think, important example to think about is the Pantheon in Rome. So this, this is a, uh, a temple dedicated to the Roman Pantheon, the, the, all of the gods of Rome. 
Um, it's very significant, spectacular as a, as a building. The architecture is extremely significant. But what's also really interesting about it is the decoration and, and what it looks like now, but also what it would have looked like in its uh, heyday. So the, um, when the Romans would, uh, one of the reasons the Romans were so successful, obviously this military strength was part of it, but, um, but they also, as they would enter into new regions, um, they would certainly slap the local populace around a bit, but they were also very interested in sort of absorbing other cultures. So um, they would come and they would you know, build an amphitheater, uh, build an aqueduct, here's some fresh water for your city. And one of the brilliant things about their evolution of power was that when they would come into a, an area, they would not force the local populace to absorb their religious tradition. They absorbed it into their own. So they would say, oh, your local gods, they're ours too. And, and that's a very important thing, right? Sort of, we'll see examples where governments crush a religious practice to exert their power. This was a different way of sort of doing that, absorbing that was, was really important. And it's one of the reasons the Romans are so successful. This idea is manifest in this building because it was filled with sculptures of the gods of, uh, of these different regions, brought from those regions. There are even God, uh, gods statues in this temple that were dedicated to those gods we haven't found yet. So they were sort of open to this idea of expansion. The interior was filled, um, much of the interior decoration is, is gone today, um, but, um, but there's a, a tremendous amount of marble revetment, like wood paneling, but with marble. And those materials come from throughout the Roman reign. The columns that you see were brought from temples throughout the Roman uh, lands. So the building itself is a physical manifestation of the idea of Rome uh, and the Roman Empire, but brought into the center, into, into the city. And it shows this idea of taking things, but bringing them to create this new whole. And it does, again, cement the power of the empire, but it does so in a way that's very different than, uh, than the sort of the theft, the more violent things that we've seen in these other examples. So one thing I also have to think about when I talk about ancient art and this idea of destruction is um, related to uh, the equestrian statue of Marcus Aurelius. Um, this thing is a cast bronze, uh, lost wax technique, so it's hollow bronze. He's about 11 and a half feet tall because he's on the horse. This is extremely, extremely rare to have a bronze sculpture from antiquity. There are a few examples that we have. Generally, those are examples, uh, Greek statues that have been recovered mostly like in the 1970s from um, scuba divers vacationing in the Mediterranean. A lot of these sculptures were lost at sea. They went down in shipwrecks, and, uh, and they were then not recovered until into the 20th century. And they're not in, a lot of them are in sort of rough shape, because being underneath the ocean for, for hundreds of years will do that to you. But um, when we think of Greek statuary, what I'm sure a lot of you think about, what I certainly do, and this may just be because of where my mind goes, this sort of beautiful, naked, gorgeous man, and he's white, right? He's made in marble. That's actually, um, those, those objects that we have that we identify as Greek sculptures, those marble pieces, are Roman copies of Greek originals. The Greeks were producing their sculpture primarily in bronze. Now, we don't have very many of these because the ones that didn't get lost at sea got melted down. And so, because in a later era, especially in the Christian era, these statues were seen as pagan, and oftentimes they actually depicted Greek and Roman gods. So the Christians had no problem melting those things down and using the metal for other things. This sculpture is highly unusual because it was not lost at sea. Um, it sat in the middle of Rome forever. The reason that it wasn't destroyed was that people thought that it was a portrait of Constantine. 
So if you know your history here, Constantine is considered the first Christian Roman emperor. And so the Christians were like, well, we're going to leave that guy alone. So this is amazing that this thing still exists. And in the light of what we would normally expect from this kind of destruction of these objects over time, it's anomalous because of this very specific reason. So that idea of destroying something because the material becomes more important than the object and the representation, that's another interesting sort of thing, thinking about the preciousness of materials and their meaning or the lack of meaning of an object over time. So speaking of Constantine, uh, this is another, I think, a very cool example of um, self-cannibalism that we get in the Roman era. So this is Constantine's arch. Uh, So they were, you know, they set up columns and arches and uh, monuments to each other, to to themselves. Constantine borrowed liberally from the arches of his predecessors that were sprinkled throughout the city. So um, on this arch, you can see various sculptural panels of different shapes and sizes and positioned in different ways. These panels, many of these panels come from monuments to Trajan, Hadrian, and also uh, Marcus Aurelius, who we've just seen. So Everybody knew that that's what that was, right? I mean, it was, it was not considered um, inappropriate to do that. The emperor is borrowing from those previous emperors who he wants to associate himself with, uh, who he's uh, allying himself with in terms of their, their benevolence or their military prowess, their popularity. By liberating certain panels from those earlier monuments and including them on his own, he is reinforcing his own power And that was considered an appropriate reuse of existing materials. So in some ways, the the arch that the panel is removed from gets, I don't know, destroyed. It gets altered in a way. Another example where something changes, something's lost, something's gained. It's, It's not always as straightforward that looting and destruction is a bad thing. So something to keep in mind in this larger story. This guy. Who's that guy? That is Napoleon. So this is a portrait by Aang of uh, Napoleon enthroned. He's really, really good at this looting thing too. Napoleon comes to control the French army during a major campaign in Italy. And he is very successful in leading the French in this, in this campaign and successfully conquering much of, of Italy. And in doing so, he swipes a tremendous amount of art. In his military structure, Napoleon establishes a commission of arts and sciences, and it is specifically charged with taking things. And these things are then brought back to Paris. And um, the whole history of the Louvre Museum is fascinating. You know, it begins as a royal collection, as the French sort of move towards, uh, through their revolutionary period, um, it becomes very much a democratic institution, then it goes back to being controlled by, by the emperor. And it's used by the people and by the emperor to sort of demonstrate their power. There's a whole story there that's very interesting. But um, Napoleon, when he is liberating things from, uh, from throughout Europe, those things are brought to the Louvre and they're put on public display as his monuments, but, but the public is allowed to view them. So it's an interesting kind of combination of this sort of democratic thing and this more dictatorial point of view. So the looting is made manifest through the parading of objects through uh, Paris. And this is just one of many examples that you can find of images that depict this. And I love the spectators are pointing at the glorious sort of objects. This particular example, one of the things that, uh, that is notable is this cart with those horses. Does anybody recognize those? They are the horses from the facade of San Marco in Venice. 
This is a contemporary view of the, of the front of the church. Those are reproductions. If you visit the site, you can see the actual um, horses. Uh, these are Roman bronze life-size, over-life-size horses, which are in Venice because the Venetians stole them when they sacked Constantinople. <laughs> so Napoleon swipes them, parades them through the city. They end up, of course, after Napoleon loses power, a lot of the stuff that he swipes ends up back where it, where it belongs. But he was, uh, there was a, a very, this is the beginning of this idea of a very specific kind of military machine that is focused on the idea of acquiring art objects. So, uh, for example, when Napoleon uh, signed the, an, the armistice with the defeated uh, Duke of Modena, this was in uh, 1796, the armistice said, the Duke of Modena undertakes to hand over 20 pictures. They will be selected by commissioners sent for that purpose from among the pictures in his gallery and realm. So that was one of the concessions that was made in this uh, concession of defeat. Uh, and so the idea of a commission that is examining the potential booty that one might swipe and determining what to take, that idea is going to recur. We're going to talk about that when we get to the Nazis, of course. He also got a lot of really, really great stuff from the Vatican. Uh, he, he extracted a tremendous amount from the Papal States. Pope Pius VI signed the Treaty of Tolentine. This was in June of 1796. In addition to a payment of about $60 million, um, the treaty stated that the Pope was to give Napoleon 100 pictures, busts, vases, and statues to be selected by the commissioners and sent to Rome, including in particular the bronze bust of Junius Brutus and the marble bust of Marcus Brutus, both on the Capitol, also 500 manuscripts at the choice of said commissioners. So 83 sculptures were taken, including the Leoachan and uh, the Apollo Belvedere, treasures of the Vatican collection today, but these were put on very prominent display in the Louvre as an indication of Napoleon's triumph. <laughs> he, um, he also made the Pope pay for the shipping, <laughs> which was, a, was equivalent of about $2.3 million. We're sort of, I'm just moving this basically chronologically. Uh, as you can imagine, during the colonial era, there's a lot of this kind of action. You know, if you go to Spain or Portugal and you go to uh, their national museums or archaeological museums, you'll often find amazing collections of stuff. So in Madrid, they have a Museum of the Americas, which has an amazing collection of things that the Spanish uh, swiped when they arrived in the New World. This is a really interesting example of this idea of destruction and demonstration of power. So this is in uh, Cusco. And what you're seeing here, Cori Concha was, uh, was the most important Inca temple. So the Inca are, are in, uh, they're sort of centered at Cusco in Peru. They're prominent from the 13th to about the 16th century. And this building is the center of their universe. So it's an incredibly important temple dedicated to the sun god. Cusco itself and the palace complex is the uh, political, spiritual, uh, social center of, of their culture. So of course when the Spanish come, they just knock that sucker down, right? Um, and so what they build over it is uh, the Church of Santo Domingo, which is what you're seeing, uh, this, this sort of distinction between that, uh, that dark wall and then what rises above it. The Spanish weren't stupid, right? The Inca really knew how to build stuff. So that's an amazing wall, no mortar. The engineering feat of Inca construction is astounding. And it's designed in such a way to ride out the uh, seismic activity, which is pretty prevalent there. So certainly, uh, this was an, a smart move in terms of uh, saving the foundation of the temple so as to then just build on top of it. But this is also very clearly a visual statement of the Spanish stomping on the Inca. 
And so they left this most sacred portion of the building and built their very westernized building on top of it as a very clear sort of demonstration that the native culture and religion had been quashed. It very clearly, visually and conceptually shows uh, the power the Spanish have over the Peruvians at that time. This is an example where you leave something behind to make your point. I mean, this is crushing for the Inca, right? I mean, this is the, this is the center of their universe, and it's been uh, destroyed. And then there's these guys. Mm. The British, the British are also extremely good at this. So um, what you're seeing here is a photograph from the uh, British Benin Punitive Expedition of 1897. And you're seeing the, the British campaigners sitting with the, the loot that they have taken from the, the palace of the Kingdom of Benin. Up until the 19th century, the, kingdom, the Benin Empire had managed to maintain its independence, even in the face of the colonial activity that was so intense uh, in Africa at that time. And the king of the Benin uh, was maintained a certain power because he was controlling trade relationships between communities in the interior and, uh, and the, particularly the British who were um, coming into West Africa. Of course, the British and the mercantile interests were interested in completely controlling that trade. And so they were trying to establish um, new agreements with the king uh, that would uh, subvert the independence of the Benin kingdom and have power of the trade completely revert to the British. The king was really quite successful at um, resisting. The British, there is a treaty that is signed in 1892, which is, a, is intended to sort of trick the king into trying to uh, release certain of his powers. He ultimately figures out what they're doing, and so he refuses to honor the treaty. And so the British start sending in troops uh, to try to attack the, the kingdom. On January 4th, this was in 1897, about 250 British troops come uh, into the kingdom. Uh, the king is alerted to their presence, and the troops are slaughtered. In retribution, uh, the British send 1,200 troops, and they completely decimate the kingdom, uh, the, the palace, and they loot everything they can find. This slide shows you um, some of the most important objects that were taken from the palace. Um, laying on the ground here are uh, bronze uh, plaques. This is an example. This is one that's in the British Museum. This is another a very interesting example of very sophisticated bronze work. Um, the Westerners couldn't believe that the Africans were actually capable of making this, so there's this whole interesting conversation about who made these things and left them here in the kingdom. The, uh, there's a great appreciation for these objects, and so that's, that's one of the reasons that, they are, that they're taken. These are uh, images of the king in procession, in examples of him in uh, practicing... Um, religious rites. I mean, it's a very important visual record of the king and his, and his lineage, and they are these beautiful uh, panels that completely cover uh, the, the spaces of the palace. So um, the palace is stripped of them, and you see the, um, they're littering the, the ground here. This, of course, has a tremendous uh, impact in terms of suppressing uh, one of the most powerful African nations. And that was intentional, of course, right? The British are uh, not happy with the extensive power they already hold. They want it all. And so this was another um, example of, a, of an attempt to uh, make a very visual demonstration to the community of the power of the conquering army. And to take these objects away and then display them in, in England is a way for the British to sort of reinforce their own success uh, at the same time that you are uh, sort of ruining the culture of the community from which you've taken them. So today you can see a display of the Benin bronzes in the British Museum uh, in London. 
in room 25. They have a really amazing display of African objects. This, of course, is, if you think of how these originally functioned, this is kind of an abomination, the way that they're displayed here, right? This is, they're dead, basically. Those kinds of actions are very intentional. Taking something out of a very explicitly religious context and putting it in a museum is, is intended to, to kill its spiritual impact. The British kind of um, looting that you may be most familiar with relates to the Parthenon in, um, in Athens. So this is just a view looking towards the Acropolis in Athens. This is interesting too. So the Acropolis and the buildings on the Acropolis were built under Pericles. So the Persians sacked Athens in 480 BCE. So he's going to rebuild that in the wake of this Persian sacking. So of course the Persians come and they knock down all these buildings, right, to, to exert their own power. It, this was the most expensive architectural campaign to date. All the most important architects and sculptors were involved. It's, it was a spectacular site. The building was used as a Greek temple, obviously, for much of its early history. As Greece's um, control passes into various hands and as the religious traditions change, the building is at one point converted into a Byzantine church. It is turned into a Catholic church in the Middle Ages. They blow out the eastern end of the building to create the apse that's necessary in the context of a Christian church, a Catholic church. Um, that obviously doesn't uh, help with the, the longevity of the statuary. It becomes a mosque when the Ottomans control Greece. They add minarets to the building to turn it into a mosque. There is, you know, modifications that happen during each of those changes, so that has had an impact on what we can see here today. The Turks at one point uh, turned the building into a munitions dump. They put all their munitions inside it, assuming they're fighting the Venetians at the time. They assume the Venetians would never build, would never bomb the building, and of course they do. So the whole thing um, collapses. Uh, so it's kind of amazing that it's that there's anything left there today. And actually, today it's kind of rotting away because the um, pollution in Athens is so bad. It's sort of just blowing off into dust. Anyway, so the building itself is spectacular, and there's all kinds of things I could say about that, but I won't. Um, but for our purposes, what's especially important is uh, the sculptural program. So there was a tremendous amount of statuary decorating the building. Um, I'm going to refer to the pediments. These are the triangular forms at the end, either end of the building. That it has a pitched roof, and so these are the sculpture that uh, that are placed within that uh, space. There's also um, a series of friezes around the exterior of the building. We don't need to get too specific about triglyphs and metopes and all that stuff, but, but there are um, individual sort of sculptural panels that show uh, battles. Centauromachies, uh, so that's a battle between the, uh, the Greeks and the centaurs. Uh, the Amazonomachies, so a battle between the Greeks and the Amazons. <laughs> there is this, I sort of think that they designed this because they're trying to come up with the most complicated, they've got you know, two figures in battle, throw a dress on one of them or make one of them half a horse, you know, all the different configurations that you can come up with in terms of battle scenes. Um, there's a ton of, of very interesting compositions there. So there are sculptural panels around the exterior of the building, and then there's also uh, another frieze that's on the interior. If you, if you walked in and, and looked at the interior walls there, there was a series of sculpture uh, there. So a lot of that stuff had been lost over time by the early 19th century, but there still were quite a few things intact. I should say also that inside of the building was the, uh, the large sculpture to um, Athena. So she's the, obviously the goddess of Athens. Uh, but in terms of the pediments, we have some sense of what they look like because there are some fragments that are left. Some of it's speculative. We do know that one side of the building showed the birth of Athena, 
um, because, of course, she's, she's the goddess to whom the temple is dedicated. If you know the story, um, she's born fully formed and fully armed from Zeus's head. He has a headache, and Hephaestus whacks him on the head with an axe, and his head splits open, and she pops out. Um, so uh, one of the pediments has the gods sort of um, gathered together and some sort of manifestation of this idea of her emerging from his head. The other uh, pediment shows the competition between Athena and Poseidon. This is fascinating to me about the Athenians and their self-regard. So their mythology says that when they established the city, they were trying to decide who to dedicate themselves to, and they, they were, couldn't decide between Poseidon and Athena. And so, uh, and they were both kind of lobbying for that. And so they said, well, show us what you got. I mean, the idea that you would ask the gods to do something like that is pretty amazing. Um, anyway, so Poseidon takes his trident, and he strikes it on the ground, and a spring uh, emerges. And they're like, oh, that's pretty good. Um, and, and Athena strikes the ground, and an olive tree emerges from the ground. And for whatever reason, the Athenians like that better. Thusly, they become Athenians. <laughs> anyway, so, so you also see the sort of image of the gods sort of coming together and the idea of the competition. So that, that's likely, you know, sort of some element of that would be, would be presented here. Um, again, there's a lot of things that I could say about the, the f- amazing quality of this, of this building and the sculpture there. In earlier manifestations of pedimental sculpture, the figures would just sort of get smaller as they got towards these kind of awkward spaces in the corners. Here uh, at, at the Parthenon, the figures are all of the same size. The composition is much more sophisticated. So you have figures that are lying down in various sort of ways, um, especially we'll see uh, details of these sorts of goddess figures that are sort of reclining. So it's very sophisticated the way that they're fit within this, um, within this configuration. And um, so there, there's an example. Um, again, we're looking at the east pediment. So both corners, you can see how they're triangular shaped, right? So that's where they're fitting into sort of those edges. You'll notice the really amazing quality of the, uh, of the sculpting. These objects were always meant to sit in this, you know, high above the ground within the pediment. But they are completely finished on the backside, as, as completely as they are on the front side. So, um, so all of this amazing kind of um, uh, wet drapery effect that you see there, it continues on the back even though you would never have seen that. Why is that? Athena knows if you do a half-assed job on her temple, right? So it's got to be perfect. So what you're seeing here are pieces from the pedimental sculpture on display, you guessed it, at the British Museum in London, room 18, which is pretty spectacular. If you ever go there, I highly recommend you check it out. These sculptures, so what you're seeing here is a long hallway that's got frieze sculpture lined up on it. So those are the elements that would have been above uh, as you're walking around the building. And at either end of this space are these, um, what you're seeing, if you walked down to where those people are standing, you see that room extends. So the, the pedimental sculpture is set out as though it's in the, you know, on that space, but you can walk around them. If you turn around, if we were in this photograph and you turned around, you'd see the other pedimental sculpture, what's left of it behind you. These sculptures, popularly referred to as the Elgin marbles, and that may be a term that you're familiar with. This is a, another really interesting kind of looting question mark um, example. So um, Lord Elgin, when Greece was under Turkish rule, he was the British envoy to the Turkish government. So this is uh, from like uh, 1801 to 1803. He bought them from the Turks. They sold them to him. Um, so he shipped them, of course, back to London, and they're on beautiful display here uh, for us to see today. And there's this you know, whole specific gallery space that's set up to accommodate the, this very large-scale installation. 
Um, as you can imagine, the Greeks have wanted these things back since they left, right? And especially once Greeks uh, achieve their independence, they're really determined to get these things back. And this is a really interesting story because the British uh, say, well, you don't, you don't have any place to put them. What are you going to do with them? You don't have a nice place to put them. We're, we're, they're safe with us. It's really amazing. You, don't, you, know, you don't have any art historians to sort of care for them. You don't have a good museum to put them in. And so the Greeks sort of d- developed that infrastructure. So you've got a bunch of now very uh, well-equipped museum specialists. <laughs> They've built an amazing museum. So this is the Acropolis Museum in Athens. And this is the Parthenon Gallery. So what's in this space in Athens are a few fragments, inscriptions, stuff the British didn't want, right? And then cast copies of the things that are in London. And what's really spectacular about this architecture is that when you're in the Parthenon Gallery, it's no accident that it's all glass wall and that you can see the building. They're saying, like, here, this is... And they've been fighting to get the sculptures back. So, uh, and the British have resisted and resisted. I have to imagine that in my lifetime these are going to end up back in Greece. There was a huge push to get it done before the uh, Olympics in Athens. Because you can't really make the argument that the Greeks can't manage this stuff anymore. You can't. Of course, the British don't want to give them up because it's one of the jewels of the collection of the British Museum. And people come to see them. It's, It's hugely important for their collection. And there are, I think there are arguments to be made about the idea of the encyclopedic museum. You know, the idea that a museum incorporates elements from all over the world, that we don't have every single important piece of Greek sculpture in Athens. You know, what happens if there's a major earthquake and all that stuff gets destroyed? The idea of having things distributed so that they're safe in certain ways and so that people around the world can enjoy them, that's, that's valid. But there is, there is a problem with this, you know, in terms of the way these things left, especially because of the really great desire that the Greeks have for their return. So I sort of imagine in my lifetime this is going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. Someday. Okay, so now let's, let's talk some Nazis. This story is, uh, is told, actually, in my favorite art history book ever. It's called The Rape of Europa, and it's about the fate of Europe's art treasures under the rise of the Nazis in the Third Reich. There has recently been a um, documentary film made uh, of that book, and I show that film in every class I can possibly wedge it into because I think it's so spectacular. So this is a very, is a very difficult story, uh, and, it, and it continues to sort of reverberate today, which, uh, which I think is also really interesting and will continue, I think, for quite some time. So what you're seeing here is a you know, sort of very typical example of Hitler and, and other Nazi uh, officials who are very, very interested in, in art objects. Uh, we know a lot about all of the different uh, um, uh, mechanisms of the Nazi war machine. The art aspect is something that generally I think people haven't known that much about. Now, you may know about it now because it's very much in the news. You know, maybe you saw Monument, Monuments Men, that, um, the George Clooney movie. Um, there is a lot of attention that's paid to this now, I honestly think because of Lynn Nichols' book. Um, it's, it really sort of brought out a lot of these stories. But um, uh, Hitler was uh, very much interested in art, and he used it in a lot of very interesting ways. So this idea of looting and destruction plays in, in many, many complicated layers during World War II. So um, Hitler was obsessed with art. He collected art. 
Um, he was interested, let me just jump ahead here. He was uh, had a, a, this plan to uh, rebuild the city of Linz, his hometown, and make it as spectacular and even better than Paris. And one of the intents was that there was going to be a museum here. It was going to be filled with all the art treasures of Europe, which he stole from everywhere else. Uh, that and that's sort of that's what we're seeing here is the sort of collection of these objects. So as the Nazis would move into um, into other countries, uh, there was always an aspect of the military campaign that was about collecting art objects, and there were very specific targets. You know, there were certain there would be lists of things that were uh, that were intended to be um, stolen. So that is happening to sort of build this idea of Hitler's monument to himself. But he's also um, very adept at sort of using art uh, in a propagandistic way. So if you know anything about 20th century art, you'll know that the Germans were doing some pretty amazing things in the very early 20th century. German expressionism is some of the most important, radical, exciting stuff that happens uh, as we get into the 20th century. And that art was considered by Hitler to be degenerate. Uh, It was not Germanic in orientation. It was showing influence by Bolshevik influence, uh, Jewish influence. Those artists who made work in this mode were, uh, were considered degenerate in his eyes. And so those works were also collected, but he was aware of the fact that um, he could use them. So certainly a lot of art that the Nazis considered degenerate was um, destroyed. That absolutely happened. But there were other things. So um, he understood that individuals found value in these objects, so a lot of these things were sold off at auction. And that's a very interesting story because a lot of museum uh, directors from from Europe, from the United States, are going to these auctions and they're buying these things and they're sick. But they know if they don't buy them that they're likely to be destroyed. But they know if they buy them they're they're financing the Nazi war machine. So this is a horrible thing. So there's a lot of stuff that gets sold for those purposes. Other work shows up in the Anartete Kunst exhibition, so the Degenerate Art Show which was um, Hitler's attempt at sort of propagandizing these ideas to the populace. So what you're seeing here is the, um, is the cover of the, uh, the catalog for the show. It's a modernist sculpture. It's really interesting. It's photographed in this way with the figure tilted up to make it look even sort of bizarre and grotesque. And notice the, the way that the text is written. It's very rough. It's very this kind of handwritten element like a torn paper. So it looks, it looks sort of unappealing. Um, this is an installation view of the show. Uh, that shows you the way the work was displayed. This doesn't look like uh, a contemporary museum installation. Um, the way the objects are presented, that's intentional. He's trying to make, he's sort of trying to debase the works. Another thing that's really interesting, they have these text panels mocking the objects. So this, obviously this artist has some kind of eye disease, um, you know, all these weird sort of comments. But another thing that's there that's fascinating is the, um, these were objects confiscated from German public collections so there are notations of uh, when the works were purchased and how much they were purchased for. And a lot of this early modern art was purchased during an, a period of great inflation in Germany. So the prices look obscene to contemporary Germans who are looking at these labels. So they're even more enraged that their government spent money on this garbage. Uh, and so he's inspiring this sort of anger about these sorts of objects. It's all in counterbalance to his conception of Germanic art, which is very uh, idealized and... and Frankly, not nearly as interesting as this stuff. But he, these works were put on public display. They were these forty thousand people came to see the show. It was very popular. For the most part, this was about sort of uh, communicating with the populace, uh, reinforcing Hitler's ideas about purity, uh, racial purity, and uh, and this Germanic ideal. I will say that this show, across the street from the show, was the ex- exhibition of great German art, which was the kind of stuff that he advocated for. 
which was all, again, very naturalistic, um, very idealized, um, um, very, uh, very square looking to our minds today. So one thing that's especially interesting about what happens under the Nazi era is that this continues to be an issue. So um, this is a, a portrait um, by Gustav Klimt of Adele Blockbauer. Sorry. You may be familiar with this painting. Anybody see a woman, the woman in gold? Which is, tells the story of the family's reclaiming of this painting. Uh, gallery owners and art collectors were, were Jewish, and so um, they were very, their apartments and homes were very specifically targeted. Uh, art was acquired from them and then redistributed. And, um, and so a lot of these objects end up in various other sorts of collections. And in many instances, the, the people who own them are, uh, are obviously perish in the Holocaust. And so uh, after the war, um, they are not reclaimed. And so there's been a lot of work uh, since the end of World War II, families determining whether those objects still exist and where they might be, and many, many court cases where families are trying to um, regain those objects. This particular painting, the, the Rape of Europa film that I mentioned, um, this painting is kind of a frame for that conversation, talking about the, the sort of court case that was uh, trying to, uh, to bring it back to the family. It, uh, it was uh, restituted to the family. It's interesting because the family, you know, this, this painting went for 140 million when it sold. If your family manages to get this back, what are you going to do with it? You can't insure it. You can't hang it in your house. You know? So in many instances, the works are donated to museums or they're sold and then they end up in museums. There are lots of instances where families make an agreement with the museum that has the piece. They just want a notation on the text panel that explains the history of that painting and the family member who lost it. So there's a lot of variation in this. And you'll see, you, we will continue to see these cases uh, pass through the courts there are objects that, that were hidden during the war that will be uncovered. There are certainly examples where uh, a serviceman for the, for the United States spent time in Europe during this period. He dies and his family goes through his stuff and they find, whoa, something that he picked up along the way. So these objects are just constantly coming back into play. And we will hear about this also for the rest of our lives, um, these objects that, that get rediscovered. This was a kind of a... a, a this one ended well, but... Um, Hitler's sort of interest in these objects and the different ways he used them. It's interesting. He destroys things to make a point. He manipulates things to make a point. He uses them for propagandistic purposes. It's very thoughtful, his sort of approach to, to art and his, uh, and his understanding of how it can serve his propagandistic purposes. I just briefly want to say that so much of that litigation continues to be problematic because in Europe, we don't have the same sorts of laws like a recently passed uh, NAGPRA is a very important piece of legislation in the United States. This is the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. This is a, a federal law that, uh, that is um, requiring museums in the United States that own objects that are connected to Native American groups in North America to determine where those, which groups those objects belong to and return them. It's a very complicated and very elaborate um, process that this involves, but, but there's a mechanism in the United States to deal with these ideas of restitution. That is a very kind of arduous process, but a really important one. So uh, those kinds of relationships don't exist in the same way in Europe, and so I would say that's one of the reasons that this issue is still sort of more problematic in Europe. Jump just here quickly to now. 
there's been a tremendous amount of this kind of activity in the last uh, several years. So I'm just going to highlight just three examples. The uh, destruction of the Bayamen uh, Buddhas in uh, Afghanistan, this is an image that shows you one of the rock-cut Buddhas before its destruction. March of 2001, they were blown up by the Taliban. Mullah Omar called for their destruction. They were, uh, under his sort of perception of the Islamic faith, they were considered idols. He was also protesting the fact that he started talking about blowing up the Buddhas, and there was a, an international outcry. And there was a lot of attention and a lot of money that was sort of sent to try to, to stop this destruction from occurring, at the same time that there was a major humanitarian crisis happening in Afghanistan. So he was offended by the West's concern for these objects and not for his people. They were blown up. And, um, and so uh, what we have today are these sort of empty niches where these uh, sculptures used to exist. They date from the 7th century, the largest one was 175 feet tall. So these gigantic objects that are, that are gone. So this was interesting because everybody knew this was going to happen. He talked about it. Uh, I signed a petition sort of calling for him to not do it as if that was going to work. And so there was a lot of attention sort of paid to this. And then obviously a lot of attention, international attention paid to their destruction. And I remember being just shocked by that. Like this kind of thing doesn't happen now. We respect these sorts of objects. No, I mean, right, it's still, it's still extremely, extremely effective. Iraq and the immediate aftermath of the American invasion, uh, you probably heard about the sacking of the National Museum. That was big news, and so you see some images of that. The image above is not quite as maybe um, sexy, but that shows the looting of archaeological sites in Iraq. They just go in with earth-moving equipment, dig big holes, and just sift through it to see what they can find. When you think of an archaeological dig, you see someone with a tiny brush, you know, brushing carefully something. That's not what was happening here. So these objects, a lot of these objects were destroyed. A lot of them have been lost. If you think about what, how archaeology works, just pulling something out of the ground and selling it in Germany, you've completely destroyed any understanding of what that thing is. You don't know where it came from. You don't know the context with it. You know, was it in a grave? Was it in a temple? It's, 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 it's dead in a different sort of way. A lot of objects have sort of appeared on the black market that have been sold uh, by looters who are uh, pulling things out of the ground. I have to say that the, the looting of the National Museum, which happened in the wake of the invasion and the confusion that, it, that resulted, um, I think this is sort of beautiful, that a lot of what was happening was people from Baghdad running to the museum and taking things and bringing them home and then afterwards bringing them back. I'd love to think that if I was in that situation, I'd be one of those people knocking through the window and, and pulling something home with me. But there are certainly things that are gone. And there are things that, are, that, <laughs> that have been published in the art history books and the survey books that I teach in my classes that are not present anymore. We don't know. Are they, is it gone, gone, or is it just disappeared for now? So this is a big deal. You know, there's a lot of conversation around this, too. This is basic human cultural objects. These are, this is the beginning of human civilization, the first objects that are produced by humans. This is really important stuff. We should all care about it. Um, and then, of course, just very, very recently, um, ISIS uh, in Palmyra. This is the Temple of Bel, August 30th of 2015. That's all that's left now. Um, the site is almost completely destroyed. Uh, this is a, like the most recent example of this. This Destruction happened over a series of about a month and a half. They took out certain elements, and, um, and it was uh, certain, then certain things were videotaped and broadcast. So this, again, is an example of, a, of an Islamic group that's sort of talking about these objects as being pagan in orientation, and, and therefore, that they, they must be destroyed. 
Uh, and so um, even just very, very recently, and, and again, this is not, this will continue. That's a very disheartening way to end, isn't it? So instead I'll end with Guernica. So <laughs> that's lighthearted. Um, what all of this tells me, I know in my heart, that art is really, really important. So when I teach Guernica and I talk about it in terms of all this sort of ways it fits into the history of art and it does that beautifully, I also talk about the fact that the painting, after Picasso completed it, he did not allow it to return to Spain. He didn't want it in Spain until Franco was no longer in power. This is an anti-fascist object that connects to events of the Spanish Civil War. And so Picasso specifically said it can't be back in Spain until Franco's out of power. That doesn't happen until the 70s. So up until that point, the painting lives in the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. During the Vietnam War, a protester goes into the museum, this is immediately in the aftermath of the My Lai Massacre, and spray paints in red paint, lies kill all. And that protester chooses this painting because it is this incredibly powerful anti-war statement. I mean, one of the things that's amazing about it is it doesn't communicate Guernica. It doesn't communicate 1937. It communicates this very basic idea of an attack against a civilian population. You don't have any kind of details of clothing or architecture to put it in a time and place. So it continues to communicate. So in the Vietnam era, when people are protesting against what they perceive to be an unjust war, it becomes an object to communicate those ideas. There is a tapestry version of this painting that hangs outside the Security Council meeting room in the UN in New York City. And in the run-up to the American invasion of Iraq, the meetings were occurring in that, uh, in that space, and the officials would emerge, and they'd be you know, jumped on, the, the press would jump on them and take pictures of them. And the Bush administration determined that images of Colin Powell standing in front of this image were, <laughs> were sending the wrong message. And so the tapestry version of the painting was draped in blue. And I say, (laughs) the reason that that worked, the reason it was working was because it communicates exactly the right thing, right? And so this idea that something can have such deep meaning in all these different moments to so many different sorts of people, to me that is an indication of why these things are important. And even if it feels like something that's happening all the way across the world and in a culture that doesn't matter to you, doesn't connect to you, these objects are important and there's a reason why they are used by governments to exert and demonstrate their power because they are powerful. And so even though there's something very painful to me about this, it also is, um, there's something very uplifting about it as well. Thanks. Keep it going for Julie Alderson. Thank you. We're going to take a couple of questions. Nancy is going to pass the microphone around. So it sounds like these objects represent the cultural soul of a people, and then when invaders come in, they want to destroy the cultural soul of a people in order to complete the destruction. And the image that I thought of from Iraq was of the, the famous one of what was supposed to be the... Um, Iraqi people pulling down the statue of Saddam Hussein. It's actually U.S. Marines with trucks. But would you place that in that same kind of category? One of the first things that happens when you come in, if you're conquering the king or the president or the dictator, if there's a big old statue of him in the middle of town, you, you knock that thing down, right? And the way that that scene is communicated to the people around the world has to do with the way it's photographed. And if you look at the photographs, they are cropped in very specific ways to communicate a certain story about what's happening. And larger views show it's not just the people sort of rising up and pulling this thing down. What would you save in Arcata? <laughs> Man, that's a good question. I mean, McKinley, that's just too easy, right? 
it's too easy. He does give me a tremendous amount of pleasure, though. I mean, I love the sort of the questioning about sort of why he is and why he's here and the way people dress him up. I mean, he's, he's, he's kind of an interesting symbol. That's also an interesting question because one of the things that I find fascinating about Arcata recently is the increase in public art that we see here. Many more sculptures sort of appearing all the time. So that makes it even more difficult to determine because there are probably things here that I haven't, that I haven't even stumbled across yet. Um, so you were talking about the... African religious objects yeah. that were taken and removed and put in the museum. But so are there different ways to put things in museums that sort of communicate that religiosity? Or yeah. is it, do yeah. you have any more thoughts about that? Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, I think that we're much more thoughtful about those kinds of things today. So an example, when I think of like um, African examples or specifically, masquerade is extremely important in a lot of African cultures. Masks and costumes that are used in masks. Those objects, again, are not alive or not fulfilling their true nature unless they're being used in the context of dance, you know, of of an activity. And pulling them out of that context and putting them in a case, you lose almost everything about what's important about them. We're much more sensitive to that now, and so, and there's very often a video that shows you exactly what that thing looks like in practice. And I think in general, people are more sensitive to the idea of working with a tribe, working with a a village, a community, to make sure that the way it's displayed is appropriate and respectful. Not everybody does that, but I think that that's much more the norm now than it's ever been. There's also something to be said for the fact that maybe if those objects are meant to exist in a religious context in a particular place, that they shouldn't exist anywhere else. Thanks again for a great lecture. I think this is going to be a favorite lecture. So... (laughs) how many times has the Mona Lisa been stolen in, in, in return? Yeah, yeah, and she's there's the whole story of her during the the um, evacuation of the Louvre is interesting too. She had her own ambulance and her own box, and it almost went off a cliff in the fo- you know the foggy night. Um, that I am certain of three times she's been stolen. There is no way you could steal that thing now. If you've been, she's behind bulletproof glass in a case. There's stanchions so you can't get close to it. I asked students how many of them have seen it and then how many of them were excited. Like, was it, was it exciting and a wonderful experience? And they almost always say no. Because what you get now is, you know, if you walk up into the room and you're looking at it, you see everyone's taking selfies of it. Um, but yeah, it's amazing that that's, she's, she's, the people have managed to walk out with that. There's a really famous picture of, of Picasso in his studio with a couple of um, African sculptures hanging behind him that he stole out of the Louvre. Just walked out the door with him under his arm. I was wondering how modern-day graffiti kind of plays into all of this. Yeah. Well, so it's interesting. I mean, graffiti as, a, as an issue is fascinating, right? And graffiti in its purest form is a form of sort of communication and protest and exists in a very specific sort of way. So uh, an artist today making a painting to hang in a, in a gallery that's got this graffiti style it's, it's interesting. I mean, I'm interested in that kind of situation. I want to know why. You know, how do you justify that? How does that relate? It's a kind of cultural appropriation in a certain way. I mean, it's, it's complicated. I have a, um, there's a, a really wonderful um, artist. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forget her name. That's going to annoy me. Um, British artist who does this uh, project where um, she goes into cities and she finds graffiti tags and she paints little tiny perfect landscape paintings on them. And she's interested, she's, she's a British, white British woman, and she's interested in the idea of what I've just done is graffiti, but do you value it differently or more because of what it is? 
I mean, that's a really interesting kind of smart way to interact with that. My favorite story about that is she did a she did one of those uh, panels, and then the graffitiist came back and tagged the tree with the with the tag that she had covered with her own painting. Um, so brilliant. Um, but yeah, that's an interesting that's an interesting thing. I mean, the sort of the issues around uh, around social class and race and institutionalization that connect to graffiti. That's it's complicated. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, obviously people graffiti things to make political points also. Um, so it sort of, again, you know, depends on the intention of the artist and sort of teasing out what, the, what, what it means in that time. Besides the whole other conversation we could have about whether that's vandalism. Uh, this is wonderful. I'm enjoying it. I'm an old-time art history student from the 60s, but what's your take on tattoo art? Yeah, there's a lot of a uh, lot of attention to tattoo work these days. It's really interesting to see the amazing variety of things that are achievable today, because of the way that it's interesting to think of the technology of tattooing and how it's evolved, the different kinds of inks and uh, and more sophisticated tools that allow for much more sophisticated visual forms. You know, it's interesting to think of that as a as another kind of another kind of art form as a, you know, the body as a different kind of gallery for the display of work, the way you curate your own body in your, in your sort of determination of what your tattoos will be. The, there's a certain amount of lack of control you have if someone's doing it to your body versus you're doing it to yourself. So uh, I'm interested too in the way that, um, like graffiti, there are lots of artists who incorporate a tattoo sort of aesthetic in their work or something that's identified as a, as a tattoo aesthetic. Yeah, that's a that's a. There's a lot to say about that as an art form too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you know the, the when we look at uh, cultural objects that that illustrate lots of African statuary relates to scarification and tattoo forms. Those things are embedded deeply embedded in those in those cultural uh, groups and their religious practice too. So there's that sort of um, very ancient sort of practice that relates to those forms and then and the sort of intense variety that we see in terms of the kinds of things that people produce today. I suppose we could talk about looting of tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think we got to wrap it up. <laughs> Would everybody give a big round of applause for Julie Alderson? Thank you. And that is our show. That was a lot to see with your mind's eye. So if you want to re-listen or see some of the pictures of what she talked about, check out khsu.org. There's a whole slideshow with pictures of the Parthenon, statues of Saddam Hussein getting pulled down, Nazis and rubble and more rubble. My favorite lecture is produced by Nancy Stevenson, Frank Whitlatch, and myself. Our live sound engineer is Chris Pereira. Our recording engineer is Mark Jeffers. Special thanks to our live audience. And to the Plaza Grill, Vicki Joyce, Kristen Gould, Lost Coast Light and Sound, Hugh Dalton, and of course, Julie Alderson. That was the last show of the season, but we are going to be back next semester with more remarkable talks from HSU educators. Meanwhile, you can subscribe to My Favorite Lecture on iTunes. We'll see you over there. My name is Mike Dronkers. Thank you for listening. Bye.